I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. The Allosaurus Attacks. His teeth plunge like knives. The Diplodocus's skin turns ragged and red. The Allosaurus bites deeper. His claws grip her belly. A frightened Diplodocus roars to the herd. Another Diplodocus swings his rump sideways. His bony tail snaps like a whip through the air. The Allosaurus falls back. His eyes sting like fire. The mother Quetzalcoatlus jerks backwards in fear. She hears her mate calling as he flies overhead. Too late, the Dromiosaurus attack. They swallow eggs whole. They rip leathery wings. The Quetzalcoatlus swoops down as near he dares. He sees and understands. He turns sharply away. I am Quetzalcoatlus. The ground trembles below me. I glide over the rock ledge and soar into the sky. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I gotta ask, when you are at home reading dinosaur books with your son, do you read them out loud in that Thulsa Doom voice you just did? Yes, if I can get away with it, uh, I use voices, but sometimes he just says, use your regular voice, Dad, and then I... I have to oblige. 
<laughs> or he could just grow up thinking that Thulsa Doom is his dad. Well, these books in particular uh, really... Um, really encourage a very dramatic reading. Now, who wrote these two we were looking at? This right. was two different books. Yes. Now, these are uh, one book is called I Am uh, Quetzalcoatlus, and the other one is I Am Diplodocus. These were written by Karen Wallace and illustrated by Mike Bostick. Now, you sent me a link to these on mm-hmm. Amazon, and I went and looked it up, and it is so funny because there is just... One-star reviews coming out the eye sockets. Mm-hmm. People are mad about these books. Yeah. the First of all, I want to get out. These are great books. I highly recommend them. These are five-star books, in my opinion. These are these are dinosaur children's books. Dinosaur children's books. And uh, and when I say I love them, I'm not being, like, ironic, like, oh, it's a horrible book, and, you know, it's uh-huh. but, but, I, but I find something weird about them. No, these are, these are great dinosaur books, but they are a bit dark. Uh, or at least they're a bit realistic. You know, so many dinosaur books are like kids having adventures with dinosaurs or things are kind of whitewashed. No, these, these books encourage the child to look through the eyes of, of, uh, of an animal living in a, in an ancient time, uh, competing for resources, having to deal with uh, relentless predators, uh, encountering death and injury. And, and I think all, all the ones I've read end in death. Uh-huh. Uh, but and it's weird because when I read the first one uh, to my son, which I think was the the Quetzalcoatlus one, uh, I was reading it for the first time aloud to him, and we were getting to the violence, and then we were getting to the part where uh, the, the male uh, uh, Quetzalcoatlus flies over and sees his family consumed by predators, and I was like, oh my god, my kid's going to lose it. This is too dark. This is too violent. He doesn't. He, he makes a skip over predation in documentaries. He's not crazy about super dramatic scenes in children's movies. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think he'd be able to handle this, but he did. He loved it. And, and he has this, I don't know, an interesting disconnect where if it's dinosaur violence, it's okay. If he has a whole book about like, it's called The Death of the Dinosaurs. It's a kid's book in which it's just, it's basically Cormac McCarthy's The Road with dinosaurs, uh-huh. just death after death after death. And he, and after we read it, he was like, Oh, that's a great book. I love that. Yeah. There is no God and we are his dinosaur prophets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and indeed, one of the reviews for the, uh, for the book uh, by Karen Wallace, I am a T-Rex or I am a Tyrann- Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the one-star reviews, someone said, this reads like a Cormac McCarthy novel. They and, did. And I agree with them, uh, but in a good way, in a five-star way. A lot of these one-star reviews featured lots of direct quotes from the books, like lists of words, ripping, slicing, slashing, tearing, and thieving. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, whoever I just quoted from the Internet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is a certain way in which I understand how dinosaur violence can seem different than violence that's taking place in the present. I mean, for one thing, we definitely do have a time desensitization mechanism in our brains in in the same way that if you hear about how yesterday a thousand people were massacred, that is a heartbreaking tragedy. Mm -hmm. But if you hear about how a thousand years ago a thousand people were massacred it's fodder for jokes yeah yeah it just doesn't it just doesn't resonate in the same way i guess it was no less tragic then but it just really doesn't hit you yeah 
And dinosaurs may suffer from that, but I think they also are subject to a, a kind of conditioning in the brain that comes from dinosaur illustrations, which is that, at least in my mind, maybe maybe this is not true across the board, but when I scan my memory of dinosaur illustrations from my childhood, mm-hmm. they're always action scenes. Oh, yeah. Something violent is happening or is about to happen. It's not just lots of pictures of, you know, some herbivores standing around in the water, drinking water, Eating leaves, maybe a carnivore just basking in the sun. There's always feeding imminent or or fighting taking place. Something's leaping at something else, mouth open, claws extended. They're wrestling. I think of that. Uh, well, this wouldn't be dinosaurs, but it would be prehistoric animals. I think of that iconic image of the saber-toothed cat, and it's some other scavenger. I don't remember what. Maybe a dire wolf fighting over a mammoth carcass. Mm. Yeah, I mean, paleo art is is rich. There's, there are a lot of just wonderful works there. I mean, especially when you're dealing with with actual painted paleo art, and oh yeah, and not some of the CGI stuff you find a, a lot of the times now. And you do have scenes of like peaceful duck-billed dinosaurs out in the water, but the ones that stick with us, and the, certainly the ones that I remember from dinosaur books as a kid, mm-hmm. and that I'm rediscovering now with my uh, almost five-year-old. Uh, are these scenes, like you say, of dramatic uh, encounters of uh, one dinosaur battling another, uh, herbivore versus predator, duking it out in a prehistoric landscape? I mean, that's the stuff that draws us in. Usually also there's like a volcano erupting yes. in the background. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I... You know, I, I guess tying in like the the whole extinction, like the the extinction of the dinosaurs is wrapped up in them. They're like the Norse gods of uh, of of prehistoric creatures. It's right? true. Yeah, they existed for like tens of millions of years, and yet in our minds, they're constantly going extinct. Yeah, but but you're right. There's almost always a volcano. It's like two animals fighting, volcano in the background. Crazy, like the fight scenes you see for dinosaurs. Like, how often do you encounter something that climactic, even in our biggest blockbusters? Like, two two combatants battling, killing each other as a volcano erupts in the background. <laughs> uh, it's crazy stuff. I guess that's how it's got to be. And th- you know what? It's probably not the fact uh, or not the case that that's really what the dominant art is. It's just that's what I remember. I think you. It makes an impact. You yeah, know? you've probably called that out right, <laughs> but. One thing that's kind of cool is that you don't have to go to fiction to find a few of these crazy action scenes from the prehistoric world. And this brings us to our topic today. Robert, uh, you suggested this episode, and the idea is fossil action scenes. Yes. Now, what made you want to do this? Was it just reading these books? Yeah, it it, it was, really. Um, I mean, I'd encountered stories about some of these, some of these major finds before. But when I read uh, to my son about dinosaurs, I, I read some of these kids' books. But we also go through the uh, Macmillan. Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Animals, oh. which is an older book. And certainly, as we read through it, we have—I have to remind myself that I'm not dealing with a, a recent text. It's like 20 or maybe 30 years old at this point. Uh, so it's probably got some outdated info. But man, those illustrations make up for it. That is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. looking at it right now. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I imagine some of you listening grew up with it as well. But it makes mention of some of these as we read the more in-depth discussions on these uh, these different fossil finds, it'll mention, oh, yeah, th- there is an encounter between protoceratops and this particular predator, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and we've learned a lot uh, from 
what this creature consisted of based on this fossil find. Now, you might be wondering, wait, well, why why would that be such a special thing? I mean, these animals live for millions of years and they get fossilized. So why wouldn't we see all kinds of action scenes in the fossil record? Why is that a rare and wonderful thing to come across? Well, you have to think a little bit about the conditions under which fossils arise to understand why this really shouldn't happen all that often. Yeah, and really it makes it makes these encounters all the more amazing. So uh, so yeah, stick stick with us here as we dive into just how fossilization occurs. Right. Okay. So when we think of fossils, we're usually thinking of bones, but that's actually a little bit narrow because a fossil in reality, as the term would be used by somebody who works in paleontology or mm. biology, is a, is a physical remnant of any kind left behind by an organism that lived in a previous geological age. So these could be things like preserved footprints or eggs or nest sites, burrows, things like that are sometimes fossilized. Or, of course, it could be the things we're more familiar with, body parts themselves. If it's more recent, it might even include maybe uh, soft tissue encased in ice or resin and stuff like that. But more often with the much longer extinct animals, we're talking about uh, fossilized bones, these geological entities that come up from the bedrock. Now, the vast majority of animals that die don't get fossilized. And you can probably figure this out if you just do a little mental math about how many organisms have ever existed <laughs> and how you're not constantly wading through fossils on planet right. Earth. Um, there are a bunch of hurdles you have to pass through to turn from a regular dead animal into a fossil. First of all, fossilization is going to strongly prefer animals with hard body parts, right? You want to have bones, teeth, shells. Animals that don't have hard body parts, if you're a jellyfish or a slug or something like that, you're almost always going to decompose entirely and just disappear into history. Also, fossilization depends very much on the environment. It's much more likely to happen in an environment that promotes rapid burial because you, you can think about it as pretty intuitive, actually. The longer a dead organism lies exposed to the open environment, the, you know, the seafloor or the air or whatever it might be, the more vulnerable it is to all kinds of pressures that would destroy it. So this could be scavenging, scavenging by animals, uh, decomposition by microbial life, erosion by forces like, uh, wind and tidal action and stuff like that, and just general destruction. If you're sitting out in the open, the parts of your body, even the hard parts of your body, are going to get worn down and destroyed over time. Yeah, I mean, I always think back to when I when I was a kid and I lived in a, a rural area. Mm -hmm. We'd go the same way to school every day or into town every day, and there was a dead fox at one point. And every, or maybe it was a coyote, I can't remember, but every time you'd pass, there'd be a little less of it. It'd be a little more scattered. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, a body is going in, in a natural environment. It's just going to be scavenged and, uh, and torn apart and then it's going to break down. Like that, that coyote is never going to be a fossil. Uh, the route where I walk my dog Charlie. Mm -hmm. It has of late had a slowly settling pile of fur with a couple visible jaw bones and teeth and stuff. Not sure what that was. At some point it was something mammalian. Uh, and yeah, you, you just watch it over time disappear. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what happens out in the open. So for this reason, if you want to turn into a fossil, if you want to be preserved, you want to be in a sediment-forming environment. Uh, that would be an area like the bottom of the seafloor where there's a good deposition of sediment on top of you. And this is one reason you're going to see way more fossils of water-dwelling animals than you do of land-dwelling animals. Uh, but rapid burial can also happen in some other situations, for example, on land where there are sand dunes in the desert that might quickly bury an animal body that, you know, if a sand dune collapses or gets blown by wind over the body, uh, or in an area where some kind of moving water flow alluvial areas can wash sediment over the body and bury it that way. Of course, over time, we know what happens to sediment under pressure. It gets turned into rocks and solidified in, in various ways. But it, even if an organism is quickly buried, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn into a fossil. Then you, you've still got a few hurdles, one of which is that it has to undergo some geological transformation. When you come across dinosaur bones in the museum, they're not really the bones of the dinosaur that you're looking at. What what you're looking at is a kind of geological photocopy, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, so one of the processes by which this happens is known as permineralization. And this is when you've got groundwater that trickles around and through a dead, buried organism. And as it trickles through the organism, it carries these minerals with it, dissolved minerals in the water. And leave some of them behind. So the mineral-laden water fills all these little microscopic gaps and pores in your bones, and it deposits some of those minerals that it carries in those empty spaces. And then over time, these minerals accumulate and crystallize throughout the structure of the bone, essentially turning the bone into a rock in the shape of the original bone. I have to admit... uh like looking back on my own history with dinosaurs, I think I had a sense of uh, sadness when I learned for the first time that dinosaur bones yeah. are not actual dinosaur bones; that they are the, they're fossils. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's it's still amazing, but right. uh, but I think I feel like there's there's a certain sadness that can sink in mm-hmm. when you when you first have to realize, oh, this is it's not as simple as the bones of the creature that I'm trying to imagine. Well, while these processes do go on, I can't say for sure that it's like none of the original bone is left. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually sure about that. So, you know, some part of it may remain in, in a process like permineralization. Yeah. Of course, um, I also have to add that when you're at the museum, you're also looking at, you might be looking at a specimen for which in a, there there is no complete skeleton. Yeah. And they're like, um, you know, casts created based right. on projections. And in some museums you might go to, uh, especially smaller museums, you might be looking at a, an entire replica. Right. Uh, as opposed to actual fossils. And a good museum will tell you the difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, for example, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, I remember going through their big fossil exhibits. It, they would have illustrations alongside the, the the reconstructions that would show you sometimes like what part was original and what part was recast. So you have this permineralization process, but then you've also got this process known as replacement. And this is similar, but uh, sort of more, more total, more holistic. An organism's body is buried and then it disappears because it gets decomposed maybe by microbial life or gets dissolved through chemical reactions with the soil or the groundwater, gets washed away and eroded. And what you're left with is a cavity in the ground in the shape of the original structure. So you might have like a cavity in the shape of a skeleton or a shell or a bone. And then this cavity gets filled in with some other mineral, creating a sort of mineral cast in the same shape as the original organic structure. 
Then, of course, there are other ways. There is, for example, carbonization, where organisms get squeezed between layers of sediment and leave this carbon imprint that sometimes happens to, like, uh, plants and insects. Then there would also be resin encasing, which we all know from Jurassic Park, oh, yes. seeing the mosquito in the amber. Things can be frozen in ice, of course, like what we see uh, from the previous Ice Age. You might see a mammoth frozen in ice. And then things can be, for example, buried in tar, like in the tar pits. So there are a lot of ways things can be preserved across the geological eons. But despite all these different ways that it can happen, it doesn't happen that much. Only a very small portion of the animals that exist get preserved. And then only a small portion of those that get preserved actually get found by us. So we have a have a very limited sampling of what there once was on planet Earth. But another thing to think about is not just the scarcity of fossils, but the process by which they're created, it doesn't tend to favor action. You know, you're you're not likely to catch a fossil of an animal in mid-behavior where it's right. clear what was happening. Something was dead, was probably very, very often moved around by some water currents or something like that. So you don't really necessarily get a sense of what was going on in this animal's life. Yeah, fossil evidence of uh, feeding behavior or any kind of like really key life moments are exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's always worth remembering that the fossil record itself is inherently incomplete. You're ne- never going to have a complete fossil record. Right. Bas- because as we've discussed, like th- the limits uh, of fossilization, the, all the criteria that have to be met uh, stand in the way of that. Um, and I don't mention this to cast doubt on what we have or the, you know, the visions of the past that we derive from our fossils. It's just that we're left to figure out the shape of what came before with an incomplete jigsaw puzzle that has no box. Right. So cannot <laughs> yeah. refer to the cover. And as Joe discussed here, to begin with, sediment has to cover an organism's remains in order for the long fossilization process to begin. Most organisms decompose before this can happen. Fossilization odds increase if the organism happens to exist in large numbers or lived in and around se- a sediment. So, for instance, trilobites meet both criteria. Right. Tons and, of them. They're yeah, on the ocean floor. Everywhere. That's great. They're very well represented in the fossil record. Not so great for a lot of these great, wonderful land predators you'd want to see. Yeah, like something like a T-Rex. That is, that would have been an apex predator. Yeah. Uh, I always think of a pyramid, a pyramid of bones. Uh-huh. Okay, And your apex predator is seated on a throne at the top of this pyramid. So you can only have so many pyramids based on uh, the, the, the bones and the bodies and the life force of the creatures. And so your apex predator, that's going to be a, a really rare find. Yeah, I mean, the ecology can't support lots of them in the first place, so there's not that many to choose from. And then it's also existing in circumstances that make it less likely to get fossilized when it dies. Right. And then, uh, you know, that's why we have we, we have a number of species out there where we're basing the entire species on maybe even just a few different bones, you know, mm-hmm. or at least an incomplete skeleton. And then plus, fossils might be set in stone, but they're far from impervious. Like all rocks, they can erode, they can melt, they can fragment. So even once fossilization occurs, that doesn't mean they're going to last. It also doesn't mean that somebody didn't build a church over it at some point. And it's now, <laughs> and so, you know, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site now. Uh-huh. And you'll never get that juicy, uh, like, you know, three T Rex uh, feeding fossil uh, extravaganza that's trapped underneath it. You know, this, so. Even if fossilization happens, we might never see it. 
So even when you do wind up with the fossil jigsaw puzzle pieces you need, you still have to figure out how they fit together. You have to imagine the missing pieces. Uh, and there's been a long process uh, in which we've continually refined our understanding of the, the form of these dinosaurs. We're still continuing to, to refine our understanding of what they looked like, how they behaved. I mean, you look at something like the Iguanodon, the, the uh-huh. famous you know, spike thumbed uh, yeah. uh, creature, one of the earliest dinosaur finds. Who's got two thumbs and got illustrated in a very weird way? Yeah, yeah. You, you <laughs> this look guy. That, yeah, that guy. Because if you look at those illustrations, the body just changes rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, T-Rex is another one where we've, we've had some, some distinct uh, changes over time in how we interpret its bodily positioning. And uh, in a, so a lot of the time we can only guess at the, the, the shape. We can form theories about the shape. And the same goes, uh, the same holds true for how different prehistoric species would have interacted with each other mm-hmm. based on their forms and the behavior of existing animals. Uh, evidence of dinosaurs feeding, as we said, is exceedingly rare. But every so often, the fossil records, record throws us a real humdinger. Uh-huh. They give us an action scene preserved in stone. So that is what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the episode. But I think we should take a quick break first. And when we come back, we will get into some of these amazing fossil action scenes. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll board it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, before we actually take a look at these fossil action scenes, one thing we should keep in mind is that we should say again, you can't always look at a fossil and know how and where an organism died. Right, because a lot of remains are, for example, moved around by water currents before they get buried and fossilized. Uh, it might call to mind, you can imagine like a big uh, alluvial floodwater deposit mm-hmm. where a bunch of bones get washed into the same place. And then you could come along as a future archaeologist and dig this up and look like, oh, there was an ancient monster battle here. This <laughs> is where the battlefield was and all the creatures fell. But really what you're looking at is a place where the bones were moved to along a, you know, a path, the path of a river mm-hmm. or, or a flood deposit or something like that. So we do need to keep in mind that you always have to approach a, uh, a fossil site with skepticism to look at the surroundings, to look for clues, to figure out if what you're looking at is a true, you know, in, in situ scene or if it's some something that has been altered by the environment or by the behavior of animals or something like that. Indeed. Keep that in mind at all times. So let's go ahead and launch into it here. Uh, it's kind of fun to think of this as a, as a big fight card, like a, you know, like a, like a, Is boxing, that a wrestling term or, you know, you know, you're like a boxing, wrestling, MMA type of, uh, situation where you, you have the card, right? <laughs> you have the, the opening matches, the mid card, and then finally the main event. Robert, I think you're more into the fighting arts than I am. <laughs> well, you know, probably, uh, some of the fighting arts. Uh, but here we're, we're talking about the, the dinosaur fighting arts. And with our first case, we're actually gonna, we're gonna kick off with just prehistoric mammal fighting arts. Right. So it's time to look at, the showdown of the Colombian mammoths. Ooh, sounds good. So these were 
Pleistocene epoch animals, Colombian mammoths, uh, about 1.5 million years ago until around 10 to 13,000 years ago. They lived in North America, stretching down into Ice Age Central America. And uh, these things were big. They were bigger than their cousins, the woolly mammoths we know about. The Colombian mammoths could grow up to about 13 feet tall, weigh maybe 8 to 10 tons or so. So I want to set the scene for how these fossils are discovered. In 1962, there are some workers who are, according to one account I read, uh, installing some electric lines. In another account I read, they were doing some surveying. So I'm not sure what's the true story there. But they were out working on a ranch in the Nebraska Panhandle. So that's western Nebraska. It's a sparsely populated part of the state. But it is a place where you can come across some ancient fossils. And near this tiny town of Crawford in western Nebraska, they came across the leg bone of an extremely large animal. And they took this leg bone uh, wrapped in some feed sack to a paleontology student named Mike Voorhees, who was brought in for excavation. Why are you, why are you grinning? <laughs> well, I, I'm just instantly w- wondering if there's a connection to Jason Voorhees. But, yeah, well, it's spelled differently. This uh, is H-I-E-S. Okay, okay. all right. All right, I'll try and force the the, uh, mental image out of my mind. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, both bone kings of a sort. Yeah. Now, Voorhees is brought in, and he discovered that there was not one, but two male Colombian mammoths fossilized together in the same site. Why together? Well, it looks like they died fighting each other. As I said a minute ago, the Colombian mammoths are related to the smaller, more northern-dwelling woolly mammoth. And mammoths lived in Europe and Asia since about 2.5 million years ago or so, and they are not the ancestors of existing elephants. I think that might be a common misconception, but instead they're cousins of elephants along a different line of elephant-like creatures. They're more closely related to Asian elephants than to African elephants. And Asian mammoths are believed to have migrated to North America over the Bering Strait land bridge about one and a half million years ago or so, and they had evolved into the form we recognize as the Colombian mammoth by about 1.1 million years ago. So they occupied North America, stretching down into Central America up to about the southern border of Canada. So you can think about them all throughout the the United States area, all, all in the plains. I've heard that they've been found uh Pretty, pretty far east and pretty far west. Uh, woolly mammoths tended to live farther up north in like Canada, Canada. I said it, you know, Canada and Alaska. Now, the uh, Colombian mammoths could live about 70 or 80 years, so that's a nice lifespan. Yeah. And once they were adults, they really had no natural predators. They're huge. Uh, now, when they were children, of course, children, the, the <laughs> is that the term for mammoths? Juvenile mammoths were uh, preyed upon by the standard carnivores of the time, maybe saber-toothed cats and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, I guess it would be a calf, right? Is it uh, calf? an elephant calf? Is that right? I think that's probably right. Okay. We'll go with it. (laughs) Now, mammoths show sexual dimorphism in the tusks, with the males having these longer, heavier tusks than the females. And sometimes the Columbi tusks could grow up to about 16 feet long. Now, think about that. This is on an animal with a body length of maybe 13 to 15 feet. So the tusks are these gigantic weapons. And these animals went extinct sometime between 13,000, 10,000 years ago, probably due to a combination of climate change and human hunting that we don't really know for sure. Have you got an illustration here? 
Oh, there it is. Man, look at those massive tusks. Yeah, and they're, they're kind of hooked in, inward. They're not, uh, not underhanded sloping up, but like, uh, hooked around like a, like grasping claw or something. And now to get back to the fossil find, uh, that young paleontologist, Mike Voorhees, who worked on the excavation in 1962, he stuck around with the project. And there was a 2006 article on NPR News where they interviewed him and he was describing the original discovery. And he said, quote, once we got to the skull, it turned out, well, there's one tusk. There's two tusks. Uh oh, three tusks. <laughs> What's going on here? Even a young student realizes that an elephant only has two tusks. So it gradually dawned on us that we actually had two animals locked in a death struggle and probably the most exciting single fossil I'd ever seen. Now, Robert, I've attached for you a, a photo of this where you can kind of see what's happening here. Now, scientists more recently believe that the, the two mammoths that are fossilized in this scene were very likely in this testosterone-fueled bull elephant phase, each about 40 years old, fighting over mating opportunities. And it appears they were well-matched because the fight led to this entanglement of the tusks, which somehow killed them both. So you've got the two skeletons locked face to face with tusks entwined. Uh, one of the mammoth's tusks is gouging into the eye socket of the oh. other. So that, that would make a good, uh, what's her name? Wallace book, right? <laughs> his, his eye is gouged. It hurts immensely. Yeah. You, this, this illustration of the, the skulls and the tusks, uh, intertwined, like this would make a, a really gnarly tattoo. I think. Uh, yes, it would. That would be, yeah, it's like a metal band album cover yeah. kind of thing. It, it's, it's for real. Now, the fight between these two mammoths was probably a lot more dangerous than the average mammoth fight. And it's because both of these mammoths had one of their tusks broken off and thus Ooh. shortened. And this actually made it more lethal than one of these would have normally been because it allowed them to get in closer for fighting. And uh, since they got in closer than would normally be possible, it led to this tangling of the tusks that killed them. Now, it's probably the case that their deaths came slowly or at least one of their deaths came slowly with one of the two bulls dying before the other one and then pinning him to the ground by the face. And in this state, they would have been unable to reach food or water, but also would have been vulnerable to opportunistic scavengers. And this this aggressive fighting between male mammoths can possibly be chalked up to the glory of what's known as must. Are you familiar with this? Concept, Robert. Oh yes, the the musk, mm -hmm. the, the the smell, the scent. No, 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 musth, musth, musth. with a th, not with a k. Ooh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm familiar with this. Okay, so musth is this kind of uh, this prob. This is not the right way to say it, but I want to characterize it this way. <laughs> it's like a recurring murderous puberty in male <laughs> elephants. Okay. More literally, what it is is a hormonal period lasting up to weeks and even months when a bull elephant's body begins to produce about sixty times the amount of testosterone normally found in male elephants. And during this period known as the must, bull elephants secrete a substance called temporin from the temporal glands on the sides of their head. You can see pictures of them where it looks like they're just oozing some gross orange fluid from their oh, temples. Wow. Uh, but it also alters their regular behavior. So they become much more violent and aggressive. Elephants that are uh, that work with humans in these periods become much more dangerous dangerous to work with. And they also emit this noise known as a must rumble. And they can be seen. I, I watched a video of this scene doing this 
d- display called tusking the ground oh, wow. where they will stab their tusks into the soil. Um, and I, I think there are multiple theories on why exactly they do that, but it, it looks pretty threatening. I'm not sure huh. if it's meant to look threatening. Huh. You know, I, I've, I've certainly watched a number of documentaries detailing, uh, elephants, but, but I, I feel like most of them tend to focus on the, the, the female herds. Yes. The, in the, the matriarchal order there, because you have the, the elderly females, uh, leading, and then you have the younger females, and then you have the, the, the young, the calves following around. And the, and the males, they, live separately. And yeah. now that you've described their behavior at times, you understand why they have to live outside the house. Right. So when they go into a must period, you just don't want to be around them. They're mm-hmm. no good. Uh, and so it's it's not unknown, actually, for for other types of animals to engage in these then these mutually deadly male dominance encounters. For example, uh, stags sometimes go into male dominance conflicts where they get their antlers hopelessly locked. You might remember from last year there was the discovery of these two bull moose in Unalakleet, Alaska. Oh, yeah, I I think I remember this, yes. So they're frozen in ice with their antlers locked. And it looks like what happened in this case was that the two moose were in a fight over mating rights and they got their antlers stuck together and then they drowned and then the water that they drowned in froze. Hmm. This also happens sometimes with male white-tailed deer and elk who they have these antlers and they lock them together in these dominance displays and sometimes they get their antlers entangled during fights over mating and territory and once they're stuck together they can become exhausted and die and sometimes even be eaten alive by coyotes in their vulnerable state. Even crazier, here's another thing I came across. Male dominance entanglement, swans. Huh. Did you see this video? <laughs> it went viral a while back, but there were these two photographers in Latvia named Alexander and Vitali Drozdov. And in 2009, they filmed this encounter where they had a pair of swans that were just hopelessly entangled by the wings and necks floating pathetically in a pond, just kind of paddling around randomly looking on the verge of death. And the two men came up to them. I, I, from what I've read, by the way, don't don't try this because swans <laughs> can actually be very aggressive and yeah, dangerous. These are big, big critters. Yeah. yeah. So don't try to mess with swans. But the two men were unable to untie the knot of bird necks and wings. And the two swans, you would, you'd have to see it. It's crazy. They are in a knot. They're just completely twisted around each other. And once they finally get all this stuff untangled, the two swans just scramble away. And without this intervention, it looks like they probably would have died. Uh, but in a National Geographic article about this incident, the Smithsonian Natural History Museum bird expert Brian K. Schmidt says that they were probably also male swans who were fighting over breeding territory. So with all these animals from swans to stags to mammoths, it often probably doesn't come to a physical fight, right? Two males are going to be making threatening displays at one another, and then the less dominant one is going to run away. But sometimes this doesn't happen, and the situation escalates into this genuine battle of strength. And I just think it's kind of odd, there's a strange poeticism to it, that the, there's this tendency of male animals across all these different classes of life to put up fighting displays for the right to mate with females, only to end up in an eternal death embrace with their enemy and usurper. Yeah, to remove them from themselves from competition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, the, uh, for the thing that they're after. Yeah. Feels somehow metaphorical. Yeah. 
Well, that is that is one heck of an encounter. I yeah, mean, it's, it's one of these where you can look at you can look at the fossil evidence, uh, you can and then you can imagine the conflict and and, and just uh, just see these uh, behemoths uh, locked up with each other and just battling to the death. Yeah. It's also kind of sad, though, to imagine what they looked like once they were on the ground. Maybe once one of them has died and they're just stuck. Yeah. I don't know. It's an ignominious end for a for a powerful beast. I agree. Well, you know, if that if that's a story of an end, uh, I think we should discuss a story of a beginning. Uh, so we're on the lower, still on the lower card here. So it's time to, you know, we, we can include uh, some some fossil action scenes that are, are less combative in nature. Well, yeah. I should hope so. Come yeah. on. Yeah, because certainly Let's when bring the peace, love and understanding. Yeah, because animal interactions don't have to include violence. They can, of course, include mating. Uh, they can also include birth itself or uh, or the, the, the care for young. Right. And that's why we turn now to the uh, ichthyosaurus. All right. Yeah, so, and, and what we are dealing with here is Ichthyosaurus live birth. Wow. And this, this really now, blew me away when I first heard about it. He, here's something that's interesting to me. I didn't know that Ichthyosaurus would have live offspring. I just would have assumed they laid eggs because it <laughs> seems like they're sort of half reptile, half fish, both right. of which lay eggs, right? Yeah. And we, and certainly when we think of aquatic reptiles, we think of existing examples, uh, the various sea turtles, who, uh, as, as, as I think most of us know, uh, have to return to shore to lay their eggs and then go back to sea. So what we're dealing with here are, um, are ichthyosaurs, in many cases specifically the ichthyosaurus. There are several different varieties. The time here is early Jurassic to early Cretaceous. Location, Europe, Greenland, and North America. And these, uh, these, uh, specimen, these uh, organisms were generally up to six feet, six inches long, or two meters long. Okay. So the ichthyosaurs were the fish lizards. Right. As the, the name implies. They were indeed highly specialized marine reptiles. They ruled the seas, ranging far and wide throughout the early Triassic times for roughly 100 million years. Uh, I love these guys, and, and I actually have a bumper sticker on my car of uh, of one done by the the local Atlanta artist R Land. Mm. Uh, it I, I interpret it as an ichthyosaur. It might just be a funky dolphin, uh, <laughs> but 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 I see it and I think ichthyosaur. Knowing R Land, does it have googly eyes? Uh, it it does have strange eyes. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know the, the the funky dolphin thing is 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 apt because indeed when you look at a skeleton or certainly a work of paleo art, the ichthyosaurus does look very much like a weird dolphin. And uh-huh. paleontologists believe they would have probably occupied the same ecological niche. Uh, the origins are unclear, but they likely evolved from a land reptile rather than another aquatic one. That is really interesting. Of course, now we know that these these marine mammals evolved probably from land-dwelling mammals, right? Mm-hmm. They were land-dwelling mammals that moved back into the water. And now we see the same thing happen with reptiles, but earlier. Yeah, it's mind-blowing to see the, the, the evolution of a basic form across different species. So you have, you know, the shark, the tuna, the dolphin, the ichthyosaurs. It, it makes me wonder if on, you know, some distant water world on another planet, uh, you're going to have creatures that are, are very different in many respects, but still end up taking the basic form uh-huh. of the ichthyosaur or the dolphin. Yeah, it seems widely successful. 
So uh, we talked earlier about you know the, the what helps a creature become a fossil. Right. If it lives in the water, if it lives in a near sediment, and if it's uh, around in, in sufficient numbers. Mm-hmm. And the ichthyosaur definitely lines up with this. It's an animal that we know very well from the fossil record based on several hundred complete skeletons. Uh, many stemming from early Jurassic fossils uh, recorded in shallow waters, now shale in uh, southern Germany. And, and these are these are some excellent fossils because in, in many cases there's a thin film of carbon around them that indicates the exact shape of their bodies while they had flesh. Hmm. So, so it's not just a matter of, you know, when you look at some of the dinosaurs, uh, skeletons, you'll see varying uh, theories about like, well, maybe this one had, uh, some sort of a, um, like a, an inflatable growth on its head, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the duck-billed dinosaurs. Yeah. Or, or just stuff about skin texture and yeah. feathers and things like that. Yeah, we don't always have enough fossil evidence to really fully imagine the flesh. But with the ichthyosaurs, we do. We have this carbon outline that tells us the shape uh, they had in life. Uh, we also have uh, fossilized poop or uh, corpolites. Uh, we have uh, stomach contents in some cases, so we know what they ate, mostly fish and some cephalopods. And mm-hmm. we even have remnants of pigment cells to suggest a dark reddish-brown colorization. Nice. Now, you might be wondering, well, why would a, an animal that lives in the water want to have a, like a dark, ruddy, you know, kind of color? Mm-hmm. And there is, there's a theory that they may have used this dark coloration to, to heat up rapidly between deep dives into the cool depths for fish. Whoa. Yeah. So again, they, they basically had the same role as a modern dolphin and paleontologists believe they, they may have become extinct due to, uh, later competition with the increasingly advanced sharks of the Cretaceous. <laughs> Now, that's funny because I love sharks, but it's hard for me to think of sharks as advanced. Well, this was a time when they were they were the hot new model. Yeah, know? I mean, they, it seems like they are the dinosaurs now. Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, and it's certainly we do have these amazing prehistoric sharks, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the megalodon, uh, Cretaxirhina, all these. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was a time when the ichthyosaurs ruled uh, the world, uh, ruled the seas for for this long stretch of time. But then the sharks got more advanced, and they they likely outcompeted them for resources. Now, one cool thing about the ichthyosaur uh, is that if it's occupying a similar niche to the dolphin and it evolved the same way, it's mm-hmm. probably not going to be a gill-breathing organism, right? But it's an air-breathing organism. Right. Yeah. Uh, everyone agrees they were air breathers. There's no getting around that. Uh, but they seem to get around the necessity of returning to shore to lay their eggs, as other uh, you know extinct and existing marine animals, uh, marine reptiles must. And that's where the action-packed fossil comes into play. Not a fossilized bit of combat, but a seemingly fossilized live birth. Wow. Or at least that's what the fossil evidence suggests. So there's there's been some debate in the past on whether this might have been mere stomach contents. Uh, you run into similar cases of interpretation, like you you have some some bodies grouped together. Is there just a, is this just some accidental overlay here? Mm-hmm. Uh, What's going on when we look at these? Uh, but the consensus now seems to be that that we do have fossil evidence of embryos and live birth, uh, sometimes scattered outside of the body. And there's some discussion over whether this was due to explosion after death, like the body Whoa. bloats up and then bursts, right? Um, early arguments that they might have given birth on land uh, gave way to uh, an aquatic consensus at least with the uh, with with uh, with many of the ichthyosaur species uh, evidence shows that they were born tail first to prevent drowning breached by nature yeah now 
This being said, in 2014, uh, Ryosuke uh, Motani of the University of California, Davis, and colleagues published research concluding that a fossilized specimen of the Ichthyosaur uh, Keohusaurus, this is the oldest of uh, Mesozoic marine reptiles that lived uh, approximately 248 million years ago, uh, they, they showed that the, the partial skeleton, which was recovered in China, may show a live birth. It features three embryos and neonates, uh, one inside the mother, uh, another exiting the pelvis with uh, half the body still inside the mother and the, the third outside. Interestingly enough, the study concluded that these specimens might have given birth on dry land due to the head-first positioning of the emerging young. Oh, okay. So this would have been uh, yeah, an older example. So we can Im- imagine how how this might have uh, developed into the the full uh at sea live birth that the the, the majority of the ichthyosaurs um, engaged in god it's crazy to imagine that this this must not be all that weird for the majority of life on earth but uh but i don't know all doing all of the life stuff mating giving birth all in this marine environment with nothing to grab hold of yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, and it's crazy to think, too, that this is a form that evolved from a terrestrial creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you basically encountered the same, the same blocks, the same, uh, uh, the same struggle to try and, and imagine, uh, just the, the, the scope of evolution, uh, mm-hmm. over the course of time periods that humans just simply did not evolve to fathom. Totally. Now, I've got another one for you, Robert. In the same scope, uh, get, getting away from the fighting more toward the reproduction and nurture. Okay. Uh, this, this one's going to be short, but in 2012, a group of German scientists reported, I thought this was amazing, the first known find of a pair of vertebrate animals fossilized in the act of mating. Oh, nice. So it's a pair of turtles from about 50 million years ago or so. It's described in the article, Caught in the Act, the first record of <laughs> copulating fossil vertebrates by Walter G. Joyce et al. in Biology Letters in 2012. And these turtles were discovered in the Eocene Messel Pit fossil site in Germany, which is a site of an ancient lake that's produced tons of fossils. And the turtles in question were Aliacellus crassisculpta, an example of what's known as the pig-nosed turtle. And the authors uh, used the fact that the two turtles died in the coital position to infer something interesting about the lake, or at least this was their their conclusion. Not everybody agrees with it. But when these types of turtles mate, the smaller male mounts up on top of the back of the larger female. And once they're in the copulation position, they tend to sort of freeze. (laughs) They just sort of stop moving around and they do their thing and they're frozen in position. Now, of course, if they're frozen in position and it happens out in open water, the couple of turtles will tend to sink down into the water during the mating process. Mm-hmm. And what the authors deduce is that the mating began on the surface waters, which were inhabitable, fine, and then sank down into the abyssal section of the lake, which they hypothesized was toxic. And this is their explanation for why this lake has produced so many fossils, that that the abyssal section of the lake uh, is it has some kind of dissolved, uh, I think they, they were talking about dissolved CO2 that would be toxic to animals that have some kind of respiration quality in their skin. And so as the mating pair sank lower during mating, their skin absorbed poisons and they died in the act only to be buried and fossilized in the sediment below and now pointed and laughed at by everyone. 
Well, I like how this this story starts out feeling like a James Bond love sequence, like from Russia with Love needs to be playing over it, you know, da 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 da, uh-huh. and then it turns deadly. Yeah, yeah, as it always does. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I thought that's kind of interesting. You can look up the picture of the two turtles. They are, uh, joined <laughs> in their fossilized state. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing to look at. So yeah, as turtles mating always, uh, always are. Uh, if you ever go to the zoo, you, you, you may encounter mating turtles and it's all, it's always worth gazing at and listening to because it's generally, there's a lot of grunting involved. I'm not sure. Have you seen the YouTube videos of turtles trying to mate with various objects such as shoes and bowls? No, I have not. Yeah, they tend to make a kind of squeaking sound that's cute. (laughs) I will have to look those up. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get back into the combat. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. 
Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So we're finally going to get back into the combat, and we're going to get back to the uh, to some of the dinosaurs that everyone's probably familiar with. You've been itching for a fight, haven't you? Robert? Yes, I have. And, and enough, we, enough of this love, <laughs> enough of this reproduction and birth. Yeah, and we're definitely, as, as in terms of the big fight card, we're we're into the the upper mid card now. Okay. So it's time for some really hard hitting action. And when you when you think about dinosaur combat, there are a few names that are going to be on that list. And I guarantee, for most people, I mean, for modern listeners, this one might even be up at the top, but I think it's probably two or three, maybe four, and that is uh, the Velociraptor. Now, I, I wonder, is wasn't there some TV show that does these historical matchups where it's like, who would win in a fight between a Velociraptor and a medieval knight? <laughs> probably. There was yeah. some show like this, wasn't there? It, it sounds like something that would be on that I didn't watch, yes. Samurai versus Velociraptor. <laughs> well, it, Advantage probably goes to the Velociraptor. Uh, yeah, just just off the top of my head, without really crunching the data, uh, these were <laughs> tell me why these, these were pretty uh, terrifying creatures. So late Cretaceous is the time period. The location: uh, Asia, modern day Mongolia, and parts of China. Mm-hmm. These guys were six feet long or one point eight meters long. So they're a member of the family uh, Dromaeosauridae. And they look pretty much like the creatures you know and love from the Jurassic Park movies, but with three major uh, differing factors here. Okay. So first of all, we know now that they had feathers, likely iridescent feathers. Nice. Okay. So I, I don't think that takes away from the terrifying nature of the Velociraptor. I know a lot of people don't like it. I love it. I think that's even better. Well, Bir- birds are scarier than lizards. Yeah, birds are scary. And you know what? You don't have to like it. <laughs> this is yeah. what the science says. Uh, they had feathers and they were terrifying. No, you uh, don't have to like it to be eaten. Yeah, they don't care. The Velociraptor doesn't care if you if you approve of its uh, of its plumage. And second, the head is all wrong in the movies. Okay, mm-hmm. so the the actual Velociraptor probably had a head that was. Uh, you know, it was long, low, flat-snouted head. It looked more like an alligator. Mm-hmm. And uh, third, 
it was sm- it was this was a smaller creature than you see in the movies. It was about the size of a large dog. Yeah, not uh, as tall. Not as, as tall. In the movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, but longer. So the creature you see in Jurassic Park is actually patterned after. Uh, d- uh, Denonicus, which is a close relative in the same family. So Michael Crichton basically wrote about Denonicus, uh, but thought, hey, Veloc- Velociraptor sounds cooler. We'll just make it be a Denonicus, and then we'll call it a Velociraptor. Now, I don't know if this theory is correct, but I have read <clears throat> that people essentially figured out why Crichton chose the name Velociraptor, and it's that they think he was using as a major research resource for Jurassic Park this one particular book by this author who had an idiosyncratic view of Deinonychus and thought that it was a Velociraptor of a different type. Uh, so I have read that. I don't know if that's correct, and I guess uh, I guess Michael Crichton has passed on, and we can't ask him. But uh, but I have heard that suggested as how that mix-up happened. Okay, so he, he might have had a little more excuse there as opposed to just it sounds cooler. But regardless, we know better now, and mm-hmm. we're still depi- in these Jurassic Park movies. They're, they're still st- making more, aren't they? Yeah, they're still making more, and they're still depicting the Velociraptor as a Deinonychus without feathers, uh-huh. which... I, I think they have a responsibility to, to fix that. I mean, granted, nobody's going in and watching Jurassic Park or Jurassic World or whatever the next one's going to be called as their, hopefully as their primary, uh, educational d- dinosaur uh, documentary. Hopefully but, that's not also where you get your info about chaos theory. Right. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, like this is still like a prime visualization of dinosaur life. I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing footage. They're putting all this money into it. Why not make it match up with our current understanding of the fossil record? I, why not have some, some feathered, uh, Denonychus or just go ahead and have feathered velociraptors? Because yeah. even, the thing is, even though they were smaller than what you see in the movie, they still would have been deadly, especially if they were hunting in a pack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think how scary that would be to get, get attacked by these tiny things. Yeah, or, you know, dog-sized thing. Nobody wants to get eaten by a pack of dogs. Well, I guess tiny is a relative word, or tiny relative to what they were yes, in the first yes. movie. It's certainly in the, the dinosaur scheme of things. Yeah. So no matter how you shake it, the raptor was indeed a member of the terrible clawed lizards uh, group here, all of which were swift, fearsome hunters, Probably pack hunters in many cases. Uh, There's some controversy about that we can get into in a bit. Yeah, we'll get back to that, especially concerning Denonychus. They would have had large brains, elongated sickle-shaped claws on the second toe of each foot, and uh, as as Jurassic Park indicates, they would have been clever girls. (laughs) Uh, But they were probably not as smart as cats or dogs are today. So don't get too excited about that. They couldn't have, uh, uh, you know, um, piloted a helicopter. So you think maybe smart for dinosaurs, but not... Not as smart as the movies would have you believe. Probably. I mean, uh, that's probably a larger conversation, right? Because I've seen my cat try to open a door. So who's to say that a dinosaur couldn't open a door? Uh, We'll leave that one for another uh, another episode. But will your cat run with your motorcycle gang? Oh, well, no, probably not. I think she would she would flatly refuse to do that. Okay, we'll leave Jurassic World out of this. Now, now tell us about the other contender here, Robert. All right, the other contender is Protoceratops. Uh, it, this one you, you've seen many pictures of this one before. It was a, a common dinosaur, and it's essentially a smaller Triceratops, a smaller horned dinosaur, but without any uh, of the uh, 
without any of the horns, save for mm. a sort of nose bulge. Okay. Now it does have like a frill, right? Yes, it does have a uh, a broad neck frill, and this was primarily to to anchor muscles for the heavy toothed beak uh, and jaw. So it was, uh, and, it, and its one horn was more of a crest, and this crest was larger and older males, suggesting that it was probably used in mating battles. It walked on all fours, though it may have been able to, to run on its back legs when needed. So this is where we get a, a really uh, important dinosaur combat fossil, also known as the fighting dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, uh, and this was, uh, this was a 1971 find in uh, Mongolia. Uh-huh. And it seems to show a deadly battle between a velociraptor and a protoceratops, roughly 74 million years old. Uh, one interpretation is that the raptor is eviscerating its prey with its claws while the protoceratops is caving in the predator's chest with its horned beak. Another interpretation is that the raptor is slicing open the throat and the Protoceratops is biting down on the raptor's right arm with its beak. Either way, it's a deadly tableau that indicates they died at the same time. Um, a, a Polish uh, Mongolian team discovered it in the, the white sandstone cliffs of the, the southern Gobi Desert, and it's uh, considered a national treasure of Mongolia. And uh, you can you can see it on display in the Mongolian Dinosaur Museum in Ulaanbaatar. I've never heard of that museum before, but Mongolia is a treasure trove of fossils. I bet that place is awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I tried to go to the website, but it was down. Uh, oh, but I would okay. certainly love to hear from anyone who's actually been there. Uh-huh. So interpretations vary on this encounter. Like, you know, certainly it's an encounter. Nobody seems to be doubting that. Mm-hmm. But some look to it as a preserved example of a common encounter. Like these, this was the common predator and this was the common prey. And yeah. this kind of thing went down all the time. In the past, others have argued that it might have been a chance encounter between two species that didn't have much to do with each other. Um, this, and this illustrates some of the problems with basing everything you know uh, about uh, prehistoric species interaction on a single bit of evidence. Yeah, totally. But that's not all, luckily. So a 2010 study published in the journal uh, Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, Paleoecology revealed uh, some corroborating fossil evidence. Uh, so th- we're talking about Upper Cretaceous deposits uh, in Inner Mongolia uh, that features a, a mass of badly eroded Protoceratops bones. Among them, they found two Velociraptor-like teeth. And bite marks. Mm. So the, the paleontologist uh, stressed that this uh, this raptor, in this case, likely scavenged its meal. Uh, but this find uh, and the fighting dinosaurs of uh, find indicate that the the creatures probably regularly fed on Protoceratops, both as hunters and scavengers. And they point out that almost all living carnivores do the exact same thing with their core prey species. Right. You, you would rather just come across a dead one and eat that without having to struggle. Right. But if you're starving, you'll kill. Yeah. Or, or likewise, hey, maybe, you know, maybe you prefer the, 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 the thrill of the, the kill, <laughs> the, the fresh meat. Though, of course, any interaction like that is going to bring the risk of injury or death. Uh, and injury for a predator can be a, a major uh, thing. Like I, I remember researching, uh, these uh, these these cases where male cheetahs develop a strategy for bringing down an ostrich, mm-hmm. which generally isn't on the menu, and one of the reasons is taking down an ostrich is dangerous. Yeah, and if you're a cheetah that depends on high speed, an injury can mean starvation because it's not like you can just go on the shelf and recoup and then get back in the game. No, that that could be a death sentence. Um, so yeah, taking on 
dangerous prey uh, is dangerous. Well, that is a perfect segue into our next conflict, which is the showdown between Tenontosaurus and Deinonychus. Yes. So now we're going to be looking at what are assumed to be a standard predator and prey species of North America. So Tenontosaurus, which is, uh, that means sinew lizard, uh, lived in the early Cretaceous a little more than a hundred million years ago in North America, especially Western regions. And it's about six to eight meters long up to around two meters high, about 2000 to 2500 pounds. And then we're back to Denonychus. Uh, the, that's the genus. The- Includes the species Denonychus antiropus. Uh, that's also early Cretaceous, same same time period, pretty much a uh, hundred million years ago, roughly. Uh, North America, United States, and Denonychus is up to about three and a half meters long, maybe a little more than a meter high, usually about a hundred and fifty pounds. So also not huge. You know, we were just talking about the smallness of the raptor. Um, there is a great story about this fossil tableau I'm about, I'm about to explain, uh, but the story is by uh, Desmond Maxwell in the December 1999 to January 2000 issue of Natural History magazine, which I think that's the magazine put out by the American Museum of Natural History, I think. Yes. Um, and it's describing the work of the Yale Peabody Museum paleontologist John Ostrom and others in understanding Denonychus largely through its relationship with its supposed prey, Tenontosaurus. So John Ostrom is now known as this really important, very influential 20th century paleontologist, and he's widely associated with our current understanding of dinosaurs as the ancestors of modern birds. Uh, People had gone back and forth in the paleontology community about the relationship between dinosaurs and birds. I think during the 1800s, people associated dinosaurs with birds, but then and a lizard model seemed to take over, and then the bird model started coming back. So in the mid-1960s, Ostrom was working on fossil fossil excavations uh, in the Cloverly Formation in Montana and Wyoming. I think this was southern Montana. And on the last day of the digging season in 1964, Ostrom discovered a composed scene of fossil bones that was totally unlike anything he'd encountered in his work before, where there were five specimens in total at this site. Four were small theropods. Now, when you think theropod, that's sort of the the Velociraptor or Tyrannosaurus kind of model, you know, two legs, yeah. the, the that, that kind of thing. And then pieces of one large ornithopod herbivore. And the site where these were discovered came to be known by the Yale excavation crew as the Shrine site. Ooh. Yeah, it evokes this kind of holy mystery. Neither of these species had been described in the scientific literature before, though I think Denonychus skeletons had been found. They hadn't just, they just hadn't really been described by scientists. And the small theropods were most noticeable for this one huge hook-shaped claw found on each foot. And this earned them their name. Denonychus also, of course, means terrible claw. Meanwhile, this one large herbivore was called Tenontosaurus, meaning sinew lizard. (laughs) It's kind of gross. They should have called it like gristle lizard. (laughs) Now, uh, because of the arrangement of the fossils, Ostrom came to a strange conclusion. These four predator carcasses lie 
you know, they lay buried around the remains of one large prey animal. And because of the nature of the area, looking at how the uh, bodies were oriented and some stuff about the sediment, Ostrom didn't think the bones could have been washed into the plate, into that place by moving water. The fossils appeared to be lying in the place where the animals died. So he concluded that Denonicus was a pack hunter. Now, you remember this from Jurassic Park, right? Mm -hmm. They're pack hunters, you know, all that. Uh, So the scene, as you should imagine it, is that a pack of around eight Denonicus attacked, wore down, and killed this much larger prey animal, the Tenontosaurus, but not before about half of the hunting pack was injured and killed in the struggle. Now, this interpretation has remained very controversial. Scientists go back and forth on it. Uh, in Jurassic Park, we do see the stand-in for the Denonicus executing these complex pack-hunting behaviors. But real evidence for this kind of pack-hunting behavior has been kind of elusive. And the article basically mentions three main lines of evidence that the Denonicus were pack hunters. One of them is the arrangement of bones itself, the weird way the bones were laid out at the shrine. Now, it's fairly certain that the fossilized animals died in the position where they were found. And here's one good piece of evidence. After a dinosaur dies, tendons in the vertebrae cause a curling up of the neck and the tail, the spine, along the, the backbone, essentially. And this is why you sometimes see dinosaur fossils with their necks curled back in these crazy positions as if screaming in pain. <laughs> you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is generally thought to be caused caused by this contraction of the, the vertebral tendons as the animal rots. Now, in this specimen, the Tenontosaurus, the tail and neck were heavily curved toward each other, making it almost impossible that the body had been moved around by water currents. It looked like this is where it was when it died. So, if multiple Denonicus died alongside this one large Tenontosaurus at the same time and in the same place, what would explain that other than some deadly fight for survival? Uh, so the Tenontosaurus is certainly large enough to batter, crush, and kill the relatively small predators, right? It, it wouldn't, it, one Denonicus versus a Tenontosaurus wouldn't be much of a fight. Mm-hmm. The prey animal is much bigger. Uh, then again, if a pack of eight attacked the, this one prey animal and half of the pack died, that does not sound like a sustainable hunting strategy. No, that is that that, that is that does not pay off for the uh, the hunters here. Right. So was it a fluke? Are we seeing some incredibly weird, rare event? Uh, were the predators desperate and starving? There's an alternate explanation of the site, which is that the Denonicus were scavenging. Hmm. The idea is that a bunch of Denonicus came across the corpse of a dead Tenontosaur and somehow died in the feeding process of scavenging on it. But then you're faced with another odd question. What killed them? Like, why did all these different Denonicus die while scavenging this one corpse? Uh, the, the, the scavenging interpretation, though, has been advocated by the prominent paleontologist Jack Horner. Uh, and I want to read a quote from the article I described. It said, quote, Horner likens the idea of a Tenontosaurus killing four Deinonychus to that of a lone wildebeest dispatching four lions. It's true the wildebeest is bigger than the lions, right? But it just seems kind of crazy thinking it would, like, kill all these predators. But back to the quote. 
Yet, an adult wildebeest might weigh from 50 to 100 pounds more than an adult lion, compared with the difference of about a ton between the Tenontosaurus and the Deinonychus preserved at the shrine site. A wildebeest falling on a lion would probably inflict little damage. A Tenontosaurus would crush a Deinonychus. Hmm. So some evidence going both ways there. It's hard to know what to think. Uh, but a couple other interesting lines of thought. One of them is teeth. Now, the Tenontosaurus remains are associated with lots of Deinonychus teeth. It seems like when you find one of these prey animals dead, there's Deinonychus teeth all around. Mm -hmm. That tells you something. Yeah, they didn't collect them. Right. (laughs) It indicates a predator-prey relationship. Um, there And there are so many Deinonychus teeth found with Tenontosaurus remains, way more than you could reasonably expect to be lost to a, like, by a solitary scavenger. If one came across, uh, one Deinonychus was eating off of a dead corpse, it wouldn't leave 11 teeth in it, right? That's just too many teeth to be lost, to be sustainable. Also, the placement of the teeth tends to concentrate in the abdomen and pelvis, why is that interesting? Well, it's actually consistent with what you see in predators today, where predators tend to feed on these areas, the abdomen and the pelvis, first when they kill an animal freshly. Uh, they tend to go for the parts while they're still sort of warm and moist, to be a little gross, to be a little Wallace-esque, <laughs> children's, children's book material, folks. So if the Deinonychus were doing the same, it looks like they were feeding on a fresh kill, not scavenging piecemeal on some dead animal they came across. And then one final point, the anatomy of the Deinonychus makes it look plausibly like a pack hunter. It's got this one terrible claw that looks effective for both grasping and slashing. Uh, the uh, enteropus the part of the name, the Deinonychus enteropus, that means counterbalancing, referring to the bone structure of the tail. Now, why would that matter? Well, it, it means that the animal is capable of making its tail rigid and using it as a counterweight to balance and control the movement of its body, which suggests kind of a quick, graceful movement. And the light weight of the predator's body also kind of suggests a fast, active hunter rather than a passive scavenger. So we still don't know whether the pack hunting interpretation of the Deinonychus is correct, but some subsequent studies kind of try to endorse the idea. Others have some evidence against it. We don't know for sure, but this one site with all these, with these dead predators and dead prey together is still something that's really interesting to think about and how it informs our understanding of how these animals hunted. All right. It's main event time. And when it comes to main event combat between dinosaurs, you know, what's the, what's the Kirk Con? What's the Flare Steamboat, the Masawa Kobashi, the Batman Joker, the Gandalf Balrog uh, encounter? What's the one that, that is so prominently featured in so many dinosaur books for children, for adults, even like paleontology uh, textbooks? What is the, what is the iconic battle? Well, it'd have to be everybody's favorite herbivore, which would be what? Triceratops? And everybody's favorite carnivore, which would be Tyrannosaurus rex. That's correct. Now, I will say Stegosaurus is also a pretty awesome uh, herbivore. People love those Thagomizers. Yeah, the Thagomizers, named for uh, Gary Larson. Yeah. Cartoon. Um, these are, of course, the, the spikes on the tail of the Stegosaurus. Uh-huh. Uh, sadly, Stegosaurus will have to wait for another uh, episode to get his due. But uh, in this case... Yes, T-Rex versus Triceratops, the classic, the the paleo uh, artist's uh, favorite battle. So let's go ahead and do a rundown of the the two combatants here. We have 
Tyrannosaurus rex, T-Rex, late Cretaceous, North America and Asia as its stomping grounds, size up to 49 feet, 15 meters long. So an adult human would, would fall short of the knee. So this was one of the largest carnosaur dinosaurs, uh, uh, and one, and, and therefore one of the largest terrestrial carnivores ever to walk the earth. Yeah, I think it's just the Spinosaurus and the Gigantosaurus up there with it. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. And it's, uh, its diet probably primarily depended on duck-billed, uh, uh, hadrosaurs. And for a while, paleontologists drifted towards, uh, what I'm, I tend to think of as a bully scavenger view of the beast. So, so it's this enormous creature, obviously, but uh, they, there were there were theories about its uh, its size and its speed mm-hmm. that made uh, paleontologists say, well, maybe what this thing did is it just scared away the predators from an existing kill. That's my corpse. Get away from it. Yeah, and who's going to stop T Rex? Because once yeah. in, in this theory, this view of a of a slow T Rex, once it ambles up, mm-hmm. you better have eaten all you can eat because it's it's going to get whatever it wants at that point. Right. Now, opinions varied, but uh, over time, the consensus drifted back towards the apex predator model of the T-Rex, the, saying that it likely hit among the trees and then ran full force, jaws open at its prey. Uh, and it certainly had encounters with Triceratops as well, which we'll get to. And, of course, that's our, our next combatant in this battle, the Triceratops. Now, you might put up for the Stegosaur, but I think Triceratops is the most widely beloved herbivore dinosaur. I, I think there's a, I, there's a very strong case for that being true. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 a, you just look at it and you, you can tell that this is, this is an animal you're behind 100%. And, uh-huh. and to go back to Jurassic Park, uh, Stegosaurus, I don't think made it into the film, but Triceratops is, is, uh, prominently featured. All the human uh, cast members, maybe except for Jeff Goldblum, I think, are hugging on it and touching mm-hmm. it yeah. as it's laying there recovering from its uh, illness. Yeah. Surely getting some staph infections from that thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, Stegosaurus is off camera. Asking, hey, what about my scene, Stephen? When when do I go on? And Steve, uh, Spielberg's like, ah, we'll, 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 just a minute, we're gonna, we got to do this scene. I think first. they show up in the sequel in the Lost World. Do movie. they? Okay. Yeah, good. If I, I remember correctly, I think the there somebody's taking a picture of one, and the Stegosaurus becomes disturbed by the loud noise that the camera makes while it's winding its film back. Ah, okay. All right, good to know. Good to know. So the Triceratops, late Cretaceous, North American. 30 feet, 9 meters long, the most famous of the horned dinosaurs, also the largest and the most abundant. So they lived in herds across North America, and unlike uh, the neck frills of other horned dinosaurs, and there are several varieties and even some sub-varieties of, uh, of Triceratops here, mm-hmm. uh, unlike these others, though, this frill was solid bone, a defensive structure to protect the neck. Mm. And we have fossil evidence of encounters between Triceratops and T-Rex, including evidence of partially healed Tyrannosaur tooth marks on a Triceratops uh, brow. Horn. Whoa, healed. And now that means it, it met a T-Rex yeah. and went to, and lived to tell the tale. Exactly. It either, it at least drove the creature away or uh-huh. managed to escape and maybe even uh, lethally injured it. Who knows? But mm-hmm. either, either way, the message seems to be Triceratops, when it encountered T-Rex, it was capable of holding its own, at least All in right. some cases. Because, of course, you're also going to have varying situations of age and size, right? Mm-hmm. Like a young um, a young uh, Triceratops encountering older T-Rex, which I understand plays into Karen Wallace's "I am a Tyrannosaurus Rex." Oh no! And I think that's why every that's one of the reasons some of the uh, the reviews were so uh, uh, critical 
is that uh, I, I don't know for sure because I haven't read it, but I think uh, the T-Rex kills the Triceratops. This is like the, the, the Grail Legend King version of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the king whose strength is failing. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> okay, so where's the fossil evidence? Where, where do we actually have an encounter between these two creatures? Uh, well, we do have what has been referred to as the Montana dueling dinosaurs, and this is uh, from about 68 million years ago. Now, here's a little fine print. Um, based on interpretation, it seems like what we have here is an encounter between the smaller Nano Tyrannus, uh, which is a close relative of the T-Rex, though some people argue that this might be a juvenile T-Rex. Tiny okay. enough to be injected into your bloodstream <laughs> no, not, and, well, not and attack your DNA directly. Yeah, well, not not that small. Don't let the nano fool you. Um, dino scale is still in play, but but certainly a smaller T Rex. And then uh, the other creature uh, is a uh, Chasmiosaurine ceratopsian, and this would have been from the Triceratops family, but smaller. Though some uh, people commenting on this uh, fossil go ahead and call it a Triceratops. Okay. Based on what we've seen of this fossil, it's believed that the two dinos killed each other in battle. T-Rex suffered a crushed skull and chest, and its teeth pierced uh, the horned one's skull as well. They were buried uh, probably by an earthquake, uh, is one of the theories. Like an earthquake happened? So they died and their bodies were there, and then an earthquake buried them, or... Does it look like the earthquake was going on while they were fighting? I, I don't know. want it to be the latter. Either interpretation is pretty amazing. Like you think of your most cinematic battles between hero and villain. Mm-hmm. Um, does it ever end in both characters killing each other and then a volcano erupts and covers them or, <laughs> or a, an earthquake swallows them whole or a, mu- a mudslide buries them? Like that kind of thing is rare even in our most, uh, in, you know, Imagined fictional uh, showdowns. Uh, modern modern stories. You don't want the hero to die usually. Yeah. I mean, what do they have? Like Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, like plunge to their death together or something. That would be a pretty awesome fossil. Can you imagine a future generation of intelligent squid creatures uh-huh. uh, looking through the fossil record of humanity and they say, "Well, we don't have a lot to go on about." human-on-human combat, but we do have the Sherlock-Moriarty fossil (laughs) find, and it's amazing. Uh, And it's got this opium pipe, you know. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, So um, this particular find, though, the the Montana dueling dinosaurs, is is pretty controversial. Uh, So it was unearthed by fossil hunters, fossil hunters that were not working on behalf of a scientific organization or a museum, they found this thing, they dug it up, and then they tried to sell the uh, rock-embedded fossils at auction for 8 to $10 million. No! Yeah, so the idea was to snag a wealthy uh, fossil enthusiast who then might donate it to a museum. Uh, it ended up failing to sell at auction in, in 2013, and uh, the thing was valued at 7 to $9 million, but bidding only reached $5.5 million. So they just put it into uh, into storage, into a vault, and that's that's where it is today. Now to give a well, that's that's sad. That's yeah. junk. Yeah. Uh, so how did this even come come to pass? Well, you have to look back a little to uh, you know the the, the post Jurassic Park uh, uh, zeal for dinosaurs. Okay, uh, and uh, in particular, there was a T Rex uh, skeleton. Uh, named Sue. This one <laughs> went up for bidding, and it was valued at about a million dollars. But the Field Museum of Natural History purchased it for eight point four million. And so critics have said, well, this was kind of the start of the the dinosaur gold rush. 
It got mm. into people's mind. If we find a really awesome fossil find, we can sell it, you know, to, at high price to the highest bidder. And then they can, they can do the science once we've done that. But first we're going to get, we're going to get our, our, our payday. Mm. And this area of discussion reminds me a lot of the meteorite hunter debate. So when, when profit chasing hunters are the ones finding scientifically significant rocks instead of the scientist, uh, then all sorts of problems emerge. Proper identification, proper protection of the find, proper values placed on the rocks, not to mention opening the door to fossil or meteorite theft, to black markets, to rock squatting. Yeah. Uh, as we see with, um, uh, with, uh, with the idea of this, uh, this fossil find just landing in a vault until somebody ponies up enough money. Yeah. Um, and the falsification is pretty interesting, too. Consider that Nicolas Cage, the actor, paid $276,000 in an auction in 20, uh, 2007 for a T-Rex skull, a skull that turned out to have been illegally removed from Mongolia, and he had to return it. That's – Nick, you should be ashamed of yourself. Well, he, he, he turned he, – he did the right thing. Give uh, Nick credit. For well, that. I guess so. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be vindictive. He, I, I think when you first told me about this, Robert, I imagined him reading an apology letter in his Con Air accent because <laughs> I just recently rewatched that movie. Well, the headline on the CNN piece that uh, I sent about that, um, um, the the title was, uh, I think, Nicolas Cage uh, returns his T-Rex skull, which kind of implied that the skull inside his head was that of a T-Rex, <laughs> which I, I kind of like. Uh, by the way, that CNN uh, article reported uh, that, quote, he bought the Tyrannosaurus skull during a time when he also bought 15 mansions, two castles, four yachts, and nine uh, Rolls Royces. So, you know, sometimes you go on a spending uh, spree and you, you make a few questionable purchase in purchases, including maybe a stolen Mongolian T-Rex skull. Well, if you're going for opulence and violating the uh, the world's right to preservation of natural history, I think you should just go all out, not, you know, skip 14 of the mansions and instead have one castle made out of T-Rex skulls. <laughs> uh, well, uh, basically, I would say. The big take home here is that sadly, the Montana dueling dinosaurs, uh, uh, find, uh, has, has not received the actual scrutiny that it deserves. And, uh, the, if there's a plus side though, the, the failure of, uh, of this, and I think there was a stegosaurus find that also failed to, to, to bring in the, the doe that the hunters wanted. These, it could indicate that the fossil bubble has burst and you'll see less of this in the future. So mm-hmm. fossil hunters will, Hopefully, be more uh, uh, influenced by the desire to to get these fines to to institutions and uh, and experts, as yeah. opposed to just making a massive payday off of it. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just not being sympathetic enough to see the other side of the coin. But to me, it seems like I don't know. Relics of past geological eras seem like the common heritage of humanity. Shouldn't they be in a place where open to the public, where people can come and see them? Yeah, but but then again, but of course, then you get down to the question: Well, that fossil relic is in Mongolia at a museum. Mm-hmm. Not everybody gets to see that. If that fossil relic is uh, in Chicago, not everyone gets to see that. So. Yeah, but that's better but than you, being in a in private. A, yeah, you know. if it's in a private vault, like virtually nobody gets to see that, and that doesn't benefit anyone. But still, this fossil exists, and that that is exciting. Yeah. So maybe one day. Uh, Kids will get to see it in a museum, and uh, paleontologists will get to give it a lot more attention. Hopefully so. 
All right, Robert, you got anything else about fossil action scenes? No, I think the the card has concluded. The main event has concluded. Uh, we we've people become, are throwing their beer cups down into the ring. Right, everyone's uh, piling out of the uh, the, the the Cretaceous uh, Thunderdome here, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're left to just consider just the just how amazing it is. First of all, that fossils exist, uh-huh. like the 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 the, str- the string of events that have to take place to reach fossilization and and then recovery and appreciation by modern humans, but then to consider that, yes, we have these amazing moments from life, violent confrontations, mating, uh, and even birth preserved in the fossil record. And I, I do, I've said this on the podcast before, but I do just want to say again, if you've never had the chance to go to a good natural history museum and look at fossil exhibits, mm-hmm. you should find a way to do this. It, it is worth it. It's so cool. It's, it's a life-changing experience to really see dinosaur fossils in person. Indeed. And uh, if you want to check out those books that uh, we read from at the beginning, again, those are by Karen Wallace. There's uh, I am a uh, Diplodocus. I am a uh, Quetzalcoatlus. And then she also has uh, one on Ankylosaurus, Tyrannosaurus. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Though be prepared for the carnage. Be prepared for the carnage. Come for the carnage. Yeah. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out uh, uh, various other podcast episodes we've done, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find the landing page for this episode. And we'll try to have some links on there that uh, go out to some of the material we've talked about here and maybe even a really uh, awesome uh, dinosaur battle illustration to cap it all off. I hope so. Uh, Also, of course, if you want to email us to get in touch directly with feedback about this episode or any other, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you you have any weird ideas if you want to tell us about some really cool fossil action scene you saw that we didn't even know about or you just want to say hi you can always email us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a dying. Is right. Is right. And in the process... Share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. 
Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.